guys, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I thought I would talk to you guys a bit about the breakup of the Beatles and dive deep into that. So a lot of people seem to think that Yoko Ono was the main cause for the Beatles to break up. Some people think that she wasn't the cause. So I kind of wanted to start this podcast by kind of learning more about like who Yoko is, not diving super deep into her backstory, but at least like figuring out who was she before she met John and like what was her upbringing before she met him and what were the events that led to her meeting him. She graduated from high school in Tokyo in 1951, and she, of course, was born and raised in Tokyo. She's Japanese, of course, so that's where she lived there. She was the first woman to be accepted into the philosophy program at her university, so that's pretty big for her, so she enjoyed doing that. But then she joined some of her family that immigrated over to New York City in 1952, and she enrolled in Sarah Lawrence College. So it was here that she then decided to make her way in America and to permanently move from Tokyo to New York City. Her parents ended up disapproving of her lifestyle. She was very into eclectic, different, strange, the unusual, avant-garde kind of art. And in New York City, this is where a lot of that art kind of thrived. So, you know, of course, you have a million and one different kind of art galleries in New York City. You have a lot of different artistic minds. And so she was really hanging out with a lot of the college kids that were into arts and philosophy and studying all that she could about that. So she was taking up a room and board, if you will, with some people that her parents disapproved of and they weren't a fan of the people that she was hanging around with. But in 1956, she left college to elope with her boyfriend at the time who was studying at Juilliard. So he was a Japanese composer and she supported herself living in New York City with her secretary day job that she had. And as well, she was taking lessons in traditional Japanese arts. And so she was trying to expand her mind with how she could create some kind of a financial monetary living with her art. Her first solo art exhibition was at a gallery in 1961. And it was here that she met John Cage, who was at this time an art teacher who was very prolific with his teachings at the New School for Social Research in New York City. And between 61 and 62, she collaborated with a lot of different artists from New York that expanded her artistic endeavors. And so she not only was interested in doing like physical art, like avant-garde sort of art styles, you know, like with actual paint and things of that nature. But she somehow switched from doing physical art like that to then doing these kind of like statements, like performance art. I think that's what it's called, performative art. And that's what she would then end up doing. I guess at the time in the 60s, that kind of art was really popular, like that performative style of art that like has a message behind it type of situation. So she then kind of met her niche that way. And that's where she ended up kind of like really flourishing with her art. And that's how we kind of weave our way into how she would end up meeting John uh, later on. So she divorced her first husband and then she got married again. And in the second marriage, she had a daughter, Kyoto, in 1963. So that's kind of the bare bones of Yoko's backstory. Again, I wasn't going to go too in depth with it, but now you know where she came from and she's now expanding her horizons to doing work with her art in London. And 
According to her, she has said multiple times that she had never heard of the Beatles before, and she only knew of Ringo, because in Japanese, Ringo's name translates into Apple. But she never knew or heard of the other members. She never heard of the Beatles before. I'm not sure how, because she even moved to New York City in the early 60s, where they were massively popular. So, I don't know. I think it would be kind of crazy to not know or have heard of the Beatles, at the time that Beatlemania was very prominent. I don't know, that's just kind of what she has claimed this whole time. So the first Beatle, though, that she would end up meeting was not John. It was Paul McCartney. She somehow found out where Paul McCartney lived in London. And the sole purpose of her going to Paul's house was to obtain a Beatles song manuscript for a book that John Cage, her artist friend, was working on. Why he needed these song lyrics from the Beatles, I'm not sure. But she apparently was supposed to go and collect these song manuscripts from the Beatles. And of course, she went to Paul because all the Beatles songs are written by Lennon McCartney. That's their partnership. So she went to Paul's house first and Paul was like taken aback by seeing this Japanese woman at his door. And she's like, can I have your Beatles song lyrics paul was like no but ask john (laughs) he would end up giving yoko the original handwritten lyrics to the song the word now john and yoko first meet on november 7th 1966 at the indica gallery in london this i think is a very famous story of how her and john met because john And all of the Beatles were very heavily into art. And of course, this is the 60s, 66, where they're starting to morph and change their musical tastes. And the songs are starting to sound a bit more psychedelic. And they're experimenting with drugs and things like that. So they're they're expanding their horizons. And thus, art is also on their radar. I know Paul was very into art. John was very into art. They all were into art a lot. John would always say that he despised some of the modern art that was out at the time because he thought a lot of them had a negative connotation to it. So his first meeting with Yoko seemed to strike a chord with not only himself, but with her. And the two of them have said in multiple interviews, like in the 70s, as they were recollecting on their first meeting, that it almost felt like a very intense spark between the two of them. And it was almost like they were drawn to each other in this very crazy way. Now, remember, John was already married, and John had been married to his first wife, Cynthia. And John already had a son, Julian. It's clear at this point in time, though, that John and Cynthia's marriage was not the strongest, that she was noticing that he was maybe starting to kind of, like, pull away, but she wanted to understand him more and to draw him closer to her and also to have him be a good father for their son, Julian. So this is the background of how he ends up meeting Yoko. He's still married, and he still has his son, Julian. But the first meeting with Yoko was almost like two star-crossed lovers coming together. It, it almost as if it was like it was meant to happen this way. So anyway, he goes to the Indica Gallery where she has some of her art pieces set up. And again, this is all like somewhat performative art. So there was this one particular interactive art piece where there was a white ladder that at the top had a magnifying glass like latched on to a bit of rope from the ladder. So the whole point was like you climb up the ladder and you grab the magnifying glass and you look up at the ceiling and 
on the ceiling was a really small written yes. And John thought, wow, this is crazy. Like, this is the first art that I've ever seen that has a positive message to it. And this is crazy. So not only did he like the whole performance piece of that whole, like, yes thing with the ladder and the magnifying glass, but he thought that meeting Yoko was so intense of a connection right away. He would end up saying this later on, and that's when we really met. That's when we locked eyes, and she got it, and I got it. And as they say in all the interviews we do, the rest is history. And Yoko has this to say about her first meeting with John. She says, I was very attracted to him, and it was a really strange situation. Of course, because they were both so drawn to each other. And now at this time, at this point in the game, Yoko had not fully divorced her second husband yet that she had the daughter with. That happens later. But she also is still married too. So they're both like cheating on their spouses, which that's not a great way to start any relationship. They're both sort of homewreckers in this together. It's strange, but this is just how it happened. The two of them were like inseparable from the first minute that they were to be with each other. Yoko started writing letters to John, sending him some conceptual art for some projects that she was working on. And soon the two of them began corresponding with writing letters to each other. In 1967, John sponsored one of Yoko's solo shows called Half a Wind at the Lisan, I hope I said that right, Lisan Gallery in London. Now, again, he was married to Cynthia. So Cynthia was seeing that like John was doing these things for Yoko, this woman. And she would ask him, how come you're doing all these things for this woman and she's calling the house all the time? And John would save face by saying that she, Yoko, was only trying to obtain money for her, quote, avant-garde bullshit, end quote. So he was trying to, on the low, like, appear as if, oh, this Yoko Ono, she's a bit of a nuisance to me. She's just a weirdo trying to get money off of me, like, trying to get Cynthia off of his back kind of thing, even though she thought it was weird. I don't think she brought it up again, which I think is what John wanted, because the two of them ended up having this relationship. So in early 1968, while the Beatles were making their first visit to India on their meditation retreat that George brought them to, John would end up writing the song Julia, which is for his mother, Julia. But in the song, there's a lyric that says, Ocean Child Calls Me. And Ocean Child is apparently the translation of Yoko's name. So this is the first time that John would write something for his muse, Yoko, in a Beatles song. So yet again, it's so funny because again, like Cynthia was on this trip. It was the Beatles and their girlfriends and their wives on this meditation retreat in India. And John, all he could think about was Yoko. This is where things start to take a really weird turn. So in May of 1968, she was on a holiday in Greece. So she finally was able to get away for herself, get away from all the bullshit with her and John. And John ended up inviting Yoko into their house. And according to... John and Yoko, they spent the night recording a selection of avant-garde tape loops, after which he said that they made love at dawn, and he said that it was very romantic, very beautiful. But this is the really shitty part, as if none of this was shitty at all, but this is the even more shitty part. John's wife, Cynthia, returns home, and when she comes home, she finds Yoko wearing her bathrobe and drinking tea with John. 
That is so cruel of the two of them. Not only was John doing something horrific, but Yoko was also partaking in this too. So how Yoko has treated John's family, like Cynthia and Julian and his family, immediate family, very abhorrent, I have to say. And even after John's death, very abhorrent how she's treated them. Yeah, disgusting. I think that's so revolting. Yoko ends up becoming pregnant, accidentally, of course, but she ends up becoming pregnant but she suffers a miscarriage in November of 1968, which happened a few weeks after John's divorce from Cynthia was finalized. So it's almost as if like a lot of things were ending. But of course, the two of them remained ever close to each other, ever close. So close, in fact, that when the Beatles were recording the Let It Be album and of course, their last album, Abbey Road, even though technically Let It Be is technically their final album. They would literally have Yoko come into the studio every day, all the time. She had an an actual mattress, like, put into the recording studio where the Beatles were recording their music, and she'd be laying on the bed, laying on the mattress. And of course, you know, that happened after the miscarriage, so she would still be in the studio laying on this mattress. So... It's just, it's a really strange situation, like, all the Beatles, excluding John, have kind of said that it was very odd to see Yoko in the studio attached to John's hip all the time. And I'm going to leave a clip of what Paul has said about this right now, so you can hear it from his own words. John had um, started to take up with Yoko, and you could tell that this was going to develop into a very intense relationship one way or the other. It wasn't going to just be two ordinary kids in love. This was, She was a very different kind of person to, from anyone we'd ever met. You know, normally it was just a girl or a woman, or you kind of knew, but the fact that she was Japanese was very different, anyway, because their culture is so different. And at the time, it was fairly crazy, you know, and we were we were getting a bit annoyed. I mean, we, we all got annoyed when she sort of, one day she showed up in the studio in, in, in a bed, and while we were making a record, she was sort of lying in the bed. And you thought, well, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's allowed. She was pregnant, and she had to lie down, so we understood. But at the same time, you're going, we're trying to make a record. You know, so it was very difficult. You had two sets of feelings. One was just, we are the Beatles, and we ought to be left alone to make our record. And then the other feeling was, but John, who is one of the Beatles, wishes to do this. So we can't tell him no. So it was kind of quite difficult to know what to do. So he makes it pretty clear that wives and girlfriends were not allowed in the studio while they were recording at all. And it was odd that he noticed that she was just around all the time. And it was like a nuisance, you know, even though Paul back then stated that it was a nuisance, he at the time... While this was happening, he he knew that, like, John and Yoko loved each other. So he wasn't trying to be an asshole about it. He just thought, well, this is very inconvenient because, like, you know, yeah, I get it. Like, you're in love with her and she's in love with you. I understand that. But at the same time, like, we're just trying to make a record here. And it's kind of a bit weird to our writing process to try and write songs while Yoko's right there. And she has her own input that she just, like, says out of nowhere. And, you know, it's not the most helpful situation And this is the thing where Ringo himself and Paul have said, and I believe George as well have probably said as well, that it was odd because it was only the four of those guys in their entire career that would ever be in the studio with each other, riffing off of each other for music, for their albums. And now all of a sudden, like, they have an intruder and it's very odd to them. 
And it's very disjointing. Like, John didn't seem to really take into consideration, like, this might be weird for the others in the group, but I want to be with Yoko all the time. So I'm going to play this clip now of what Ringo has to say about the situation. We were very possessive of each other, you know. The four of us had been through a lot together and we were very close most of the time. We weren't close all the time, but most of the time four of us were very close and we didn't like strangers coming in too much. And the wives and the girlfriends never came to the studio. That was where we were together. And I think that's why we worked so well because it was just the four of us. And it was intense, you know, and dramatic and we were trying to get the record done. You know, I was wondering what was happening one day. So I was saying to John, you know, what is going on here? What's, you know, you're always together all the time. You know, it's freaking me out a bit. What's happening? He said, and he told me what they were trying to do. It's nothing to do with you listening public. But he told me what they were doing. So then I was fine after that. I thought, I said, oh, well, okay. I mean, that's how he wants to do it. You know, that's fine with me. And then I sort of relaxed a lot around Yoko. And what Ringo says truly makes a lot of sense. Like, they were just so used to being just the four guys together. That that's how, through all those years, that they knew how to make music together. So now all of a sudden on Let It Be, things are already very high, high key stressful. Because, you know, Let It Be, the whole purpose of Let It Be was that they were going to create almost like a final, a final show. One final last hurrah for the Beatles, putting on a show for their fans. And so they had to come out with an album. Not only for that, but I believe the original concept for Let It Be, if I'm remembering correctly, was something to do with like a special, like a TV special or something. So they had to have all of their music for Let It Be, the album, done in a time crunch. And the Beatles, while they usually were fast in the studio, they had to even faster come together with an album of which they had never done before. So they had to work on songs very quickly. And tensions were already very high between the four men themselves. Of course, we know of the famous story of Paul and George going at each other and having that whole row where George was saying to Paul, let me play the guitar how I play it. Like, and don't kind of tell me how to do it. But Paul is just kind of like, you know, coaching him on how to do a certain kind of guitar thingy, you know. But George didn't want to do that. So that whole rift between the two of them was not good at all. It's a, it's unfortunate, you know. Ringo has his thoughts as well on the breakup of the Beatles in terms of like that aspect as well, in terms of, you know, the four of them, which I can input here. Uh, George was getting a lot of independence for himself in those ages, writing more. He wanted things to go his way. Where When we first started, they basically went John and Paul's way, you know, because they were the writers. And they'd say, you know, this is the song. We, I would play as creatively as I could, and they would say, can you do this? But sometimes I'd have three people telling me how to do it, and I'd play it the only way I could, and it seemed to work, you know, because the three frustrated drummers I used to have in my band. Uh, anyway, back to George. And the other reason, I think Paul was... George was finding his independence, and he wouldn't be dominated as much by Paul as he was. Um, and I think that was another factor, because George left with a big row with Paul, because Paul like wanted to point out how to play, because it was his song, you see. I mean, he had sort of a right, but no right at all to do that, you know, to say, I wrote the song. He got a bit like, I wrote the song, I want it this way, where before it was, I want the song, give me what you can give me, which that's how it was earlier on. So, And also, you know, well, we were all married by then, you know, the family, and and... 
and everyone wanted to do different things and I wanted to be in movies and stuff we'd been together so long we were living our own lives you know I think that I couldn't put my finger on one thing why we broke up it was time and we were spreading out you know well they were spreading out more than I was I would have stayed with the bear but tensions were already very high like I said and Yoko just, I think, was added into the mix at a very horrible time. And I think to kind of almost maybe retaliate in some ways, Paul thought, okay, well, if John's bringing Yoko into the studio, then I'll bring Linda into the studio. You know, Linda, of course, Linda Eastman, love her, lovely, lovely woman. And she would come in there with her camera. She'd take photos. You know, of course, in the documentary, you see that Linda's daughter, Heather, also comes into the studio one day. You know, so it's just very chaotic, but it's it's just a very strange, very weird incident. They had written a song called The Ballad of John and Yoko, and that was the first time that John had, of course, written a song about Yoko directly, but also about their marriage. So the two of them ended up getting married in a registry office in Gibraltar on March 20th, 1969, and they spent their honeymoon in Amsterdam campaigning with a week-long bed-in for peace. They documented all of their marriage plans and their honeymoon plans and the the craziness that would befall their relationship in that song. But, you know, after that, you know, John really wanted to kind of figure out, okay, I want to create my own music, but I don't want to do it with the Beatles anymore. Like, how do I create my own stuff? The problem therein lied was that the very famous Bed In For Peace that happened with John and Yoko in Montreal, they recorded their song Give Peace a Chance. And what I thought was very fascinating was the songwriting credits for that go to Lennon McCartney, even though Paul had nothing to do with the song. It was him and it was Yoko that created that song with everyone at the hotel. So that's just how it naturally went, though, at the time. Everything that John would do, everything that Paul would do, it would naturally fall under the Lennon-McCartney sphere. So John had said that he later regretted giving Paul the songwriting credits as co-writer on his first independent single instead of giving it to Yoko, who had actually written it with him. So this is where John, again, was like, okay, like, I want to be independent and separate from not only the Lennon-McCartney collaborative songwriting partnership, but from the Beatles. And so from there, he then created the Plastic Ono Band. And of course, you know, definitely George was coming up with a lot of stuff for what would be his debut album for All Things Must Pass. Paul was already doing some solo stuff too for his solo album that would come out at the time. And a story that I thought was very interesting that just added to this whole freaking mess of the Beatles breaking up was Paul was already set to go with his first debut album, McCartney, and he got a sort of, if you will, cease and desist from the other three Beatles. Ringo showed up at Paul's house with like a letter and they were like, you can't release your McCartney album because we have this Beatles album that's coming out on the same day. So you can't do that. (laughs) And according to Paul, he kicked Ringo out of his house, (laughs) which I think is pretty funny. But it's just, you know, there's all these tensions in the group. And not only that, but there's so many issues with when they were going to dissolve the band, Paul had to take them to court because Alan Klein was their financial overseer, financial advisor, if you will, when they created Apple. And Apple failed, of course. But I mean, you know, they they intended Apple to be this big thing that would just 
not only be about a record label, but that would be for a lot of different kind of merchandising in the entertainment sphere. But Alan Klein came on to kind of manage the Beatles' finances, and he notoriously took a lot of money. Paul was like the odd man out because he saw Alan Klein was taking money, and he said that he could smell a rat, and he had to get Alan Klein out before he took more. And he thought, well, how if he could take this much money this quickly, how long is it going to be before all the money is gone? Because remember, all the royalties that the Beatles had had from their inception until that point was all tied to Alan Klein, who was managing that money. And he already took a lot of money. Paul was like, I have to figure out a way to get out of this situation. Paul at the time asked his father-in-law, Linda Eastman's father, who was a lawyer, to help him with the situation to see if there was anything that could be done. And the only thing that could be done was to take the Beatles to court. And he did not want to do that. He just wanted Alan Klein out of the picture. But unfortunately, because the other three Beatles were like vying for Alan Klein and they had no issue with Alan Klein, they saw no problem with Alan Klein. Paul had no other option. And he didn't want to do that. He did not want to take the Beatles to court. And he knew that it would make him look terrible. And he didn't want to take his friends to court. He loved his friends. So he tried his best to like send each of them private letters. You know, like he tried to reason with Ringo and Ringo was like, it's not just an Alan Klein problem, but it's an Eastman problem. So Ringo wasn't really on board. He tried to write a letter to John and John was like, what have you got planned? And Paul explained like, I'm trying to get Alan Klein out of the picture, but I don't want to take us to court. So if we have all of our signatures to get Alan Klein out of here, then I don't got to take us to court. And John is like, if you get all the signatures, let me know and I'll change my tune, which is cool. So John was kind of on board in a sense, but Paul had no other option because he couldn't get the other Beatles to agree and to sign on this dotted line of let's just break up amicably and keep our money. But unfortunately, Paul had to take them to court and I believe they went to court for roughly nine days You know, the other Beatles, they were not happy that they were being taken to court by Paul. And Paul was seen in the eyes of the media and to his bandmates as like almost a sort of betrayer or like a villain, a baddie, as he says. He says that people call him like a baddie, like, oh, I'm the baddie of the Beatles. But I really think Paul had no choice. And I thought about this the other day. Paul had no choice but to do what he did. And it saved them in the long run because they eventually got all their money back. Paul managed to save what was left of the Beatles' money that was created by them and the royalties. And if it wasn't for Paul, we would not have these these things like the anthology series, the past masters that the Beatles' management were able to do later on. They wouldn't have had the money. So if it wasn't for Paul really stepping in to try to save the day for him and the group and put their best interest forward above the greedy Alan Klein, then we wouldn't have all these wonderful, amazing things that we have from the Beatles now. Like again, like the anthology series, the past master series, all the other things that we've got from the Beatles now. So we have to thank Paul McCartney for that. And it's really nice as well that the Get Back, Let It Be documentary that Peter Jackson had done recently really shed some light on the fact that like Paul wasn't as bad as people had made him out to be. He wasn't this mean guy that was trying to interject his own opinions and tell everyone what to do, what not to do. Like he was just trying to save the group after their manager, Brian Epstein had passed away tragically in 1967. They had no one to really look after them. And the Beatles were despondent. They literally would have probably disbanded at that time 
if Paul hadn't have stepped up. And so Paul thought to himself, well, no one is stepping up to be the leader. No one is like leading all of us to, you know, to go on and march on and continue. So he thought it was on his shoulders to have to be the one to do it because the other Beatles were so despondent. Um, that period had, in my memory, had always been a little bit um, dark because it was to do with the Beatles breaking up. The first Let It Be film was cut a little bit with that in mind. So I found it a bit depressing. And so when Peter Jackson was uh, slated to do this, this version, uh, I said to him, Peter, you know, I'm not sure I'm gonna like this. Um, you know, I got blamed for breaking up the Beatles and in actual fact, it wasn't me. But then after a couple of months he'd been working on it, he got in touch with me, he said, it's not like that at all. So there's just these four guys in a room and you're having fun. And you know, and I really, I forgave myself when I saw that. I thought I was too bossy. I thought that that would have been the problem. But when I saw the film, I'm not being bossy at all. I'm just trying to get people to work. I forgave myself, I let myself off. I thought, yeah, that's all I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to be pushy or I was just trying to get the work done. So honestly, Paul is seen as a baddie, but I see him as a goodie. He's a good person. And I think it's great that we can now like change the narrative of, you know, this whole thing of, oh, Paul is like a selfish, greedy guy who took the Beatles to court at their breakup and wanted their money and blah, blah, blah. Like, no, that's not how it went down at all. So I just thought, you know, in conjunction with all of this, like with Yoko being in the mix too, it just, it kind of created a weird hodgepodge of a situation. I would probably say, this is my own opinion, I would probably say that Yoko being in the studio, while there were already a lot of tensions within the group itself, did not help the situation. Um, I think there was no foresight from either John or Yoko about, ooh, maybe I shouldn't be here. Like, I can see that there's tensions. I can see that maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I should just be like, John, as much as I love you, I gotta, like, just go. I'll see you at home type of situation and just leave John to do what he's got to do. But who knows, you know? Yoko was kind of seen as John's muse, and I think John was maybe more content to be with the Beatles and to do his music if Yoko was there. So unfortunately, it was almost like, well, if we want John, Yoko also has to be there. All of them tried their best to kind of like pacify the situation with Yoko being there, but it really was not the best situation. I remember as well that Paul stated that like Yoko was sitting on one of his amps one day and Paul was like, um, what? Like, hello, you can't just sit on my amp. That's my amplifier. Go sit on a chair or something. You know, it was really, um... It was a really unfortunate situation, you know. I don't really subscribe to Yoko being the main reason why they broke up, but she, well, the band already had problems, massive problems with each other. And I think Yoko for sure was the straw that broke their back. That was like the final straw, you know. And I think they needed a break, but not a breakup of the band. But unfortunately, they all wanted to do their own things. They wanted to go their separate ways. They were already starting to want to do different things solo-wise with their music. Unfortunately, you know, John and Yoko's relationship was also kind of at the center of this. And ever since the Beatles broke up, people have, you know, put this notion that, oh, Yoko's the reason why the Beatles broke up. But clearly, while I think she was the straw that broke their back, I think she wasn't the main reason. I think she was a reason, but I think there were 
a lot of reasons why they broke up, especially because they were already starting to kind of separate at the seams within each other. Not only was Paul seen as like the bad person after the breakup, but Yoko was too. I mean, Yoko, for sure, she, I think she did some questionable things. And while personally, there are some things about her that I'm not a massive fan of, I think it's unfair to put on her that she was the 100% reason why they split. So John would later say in his 1980 interview in Playboy magazine that our love helped us survive it, but some of it was pretty violent. That is what he would say after uh, the Beatles broke up and where people would blame Yoko for it. That is kind of the situation at hand, though. George never really spoke on the breakup. Not to my recollection. I tried to look. He never really gave a crap about it. Like, after the breakup of the Beatles, he only cared about spirituality and about living a quiet life and, you know, his music and his religion. He didn't really care about, like, you know, the breakup and all that stuff on that famous Dick Cavett interview that George did where Dick Cavett was like, Yoko sat in that very chair you're sitting in. And George like got up off the chair like crazily. But at the same time, he kind of was like, I'm sure a lot of people have sat in this chair. <laughs> so he kind of like, you know, was making a joke out of it. But at the same time, I don't think he really gave a crap. Was he a fan of her? I would probably say no. I think at a lot of points in time during that whole crazy era of the Let It Be and the Abbey Road era and the Breakup era, I think all three of those Beatles probably weren't a fan of her. I know that Paul at some point had to kind of like play devil's advocate that if he wanted John as his collaborator and his friend to keep making music and to do what they had to do contractually for the Let It Be album and for the Abbey Road album that he needed Yoko there too, unfortunately. So, and, and Paul understood though too that they loved each other and they just wanted to be close to each other. But still at the same time, it, of course, wasn't the greatest situation. There is actually a very interesting story that I found out that I never heard about until I was researching this podcast where I'm going to play you the story instead of me telling you the story because it's better to hear it from Paul's mouth than my own mouth. I was telling you about the marriage thing. When they, when they broke up, um, she came, we came through London and visited us, which was very nice. And Linda and I just got married just a bit before. And uh, Yoko came by and we started talking. Obviously, the important subject for us is what's happened? You've broken up then, you know, you're here, he's there. And she was very nice and confided in us that, yeah, you know, it's kind of broken up. But she was being very strong about it, very, not feminist, but being a strong woman rather than just submitted to it all. And she said, no, he's got to work his way back. If he's to get back with me, I can't just go. And she couldn't, She's, which is good. And I said, well, look, I mean, if I see him, what, are you still in love? Do you still still love me? She said, yeah. I said, well, would you be, would you think it was an intrusion if I kind of said to him, look, man, she loves you and there's a way to get back. And I said this uh, to Yoko, I said, would that be okay? Would you hate that? Uh, but, you know, we might see him around, so I, I would like to be a mediator in this because I think you, the two of you obviously got something pretty strong going. And she said she didn't mind. So that was that visit. And we went out to visit them and they were doing pussycats. And uh, it was weird, kind of just meeting and everything. But then I, I, I just said to John, who was in the house with uh, Nielsen, Jesse, uh, his mum, and a few of the guys. And I said to him, hey, come on, come in. Come in the back room. I want to talk to you private. But this girl, you know, she really still loves you. Do you love her? Because I felt like a judge or somebody, you know, uh, in a divorce court, you know, divorce separate. 
And he said, yeah, I do. He said, but I don't know what to do. I said, well, I'll talk to her. So I said, she does still love you, but you're going to have to work your little ass off, man. You have to get back to New York. You have to take a separate flat. You have to send her roses every fucking day. You have to work at it like a bitch, and you just might get her back. And, which is sort of what he did. I just think that's really crazy. Like, you know, yet again, like, it really goes to show that, sure, while Paul... You know, while during the breakup of the Beatles, he wasn't the most happy with Yoko. He wasn't super on board. At the same time, he really cared about his friendship and relationship with John. And he cares more about that and making sure John is happy than anything else. And yet again, I think it goes to show that Paul is not the bad person here. That he all he cared about was just trying to keep the band together, do the things that they were supposed to do you know, keep things on a timely order with the Let It Be album and all the stuff that they were planning on doing for that. And it's clear that the other Beatles just wanted nothing to do with it. Paul, I think, was trying to keep them all together. And Paul took the fall on the sword for a lot of that. So I think it's interesting this dichotomy here between Paul in the breakup and Yoko in the breakup. In my humble opinion, like I said, Paul is not the bad person here. Yoko isn't necessarily the bad person here either, but Yoko has done a lot of things that I don't necessarily jive with or agree with. Yoko wasn't really the main antagonist. Was there foresight that was missing in terms of like, yeah, maybe I just shouldn't be here while they're doing these things. Like me being here maybe isn't helping. Like, sure. I don't think maybe she thought about that. I think she thought about, well, John wants me to be here and I want to be with John. So whatever. That's not the best course of action. But you have to remember, too, like the Beatles, they were, I believe, in their late 20s when they broke up. So they're still young guys trying to figure things out. And like Paul and George and Ringo have said, they were all family. And like family, you have a bit of tete-a-tetes from time to time. And you have a bit of like trysts from time to time. And you get into it with one another from time to time. And it's nice, though, that on some respects, like, yeah, after the breakup, Paul and John had their fighting back and forth, but they got back together as friends. And that, you know, George and Ringo and Paul and John, they all were on good terms at some point after the breakup. So we can at least have that positive takeaway. But I think the takeaway from this episode, though, is to say Yoko was not the main reason why they broke up. And I think that's a mic drop moment right there. So I think with that being said, I really think that there's nothing else for me to really add to this. I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say. If you think Yoko was the reason why they broke up, um, what your reasons are for it, or if you think she wasn't the reason, I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say. So if you aren't following me on Instagram or threads, it's on the Mix Podcast. Um, also, if you aren't following me on Spotify or Apple and you haven't given the podcast a rating or a review, um, please do. That helps me out a lot. I greatly appreciate it. And if you'd like to monetarily support the podcast so that I can keep coming out with content and all the funds that I get from you guys gets funneled right back into the podcast, then there's a link for that down below as well. Everything will be in the description. So thank you guys very much for listening. I hope that you guys enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. And this was an absolute joy for me to talk about. It was fun. So I hope that you guys enjoyed. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix, and I will talk to you guys later. Bye, guys.